Hello, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to our Q&A session tonight, our Wednesday worship with questions and answers. We had a pretty good slate of questions submitted uh, either late last week or Monday night at Triple Dollar Dinner. So thank you for uh, all of the questions. We'll try to get through all of them tonight uh, as much as possible. But we'll begin our worship in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's just get started. Uh, Steve is going to do like all kinds of double, triple duty back there as AV. He's got a microphone set up. So the way, we, the way I like to do this is just throw out the question. And if you guys have thoughts that you'd like to share, I'd love to hear from you first. And then Vicar and I will give our thoughts at the end of uh, listening to what you guys have to say. So you didn't get the questions in advance. So if you don't have anything to say, that's okay too. But here's the first question for tonight. Do we know what the actual date of Christmas is? Any thoughts? Anybody do a deep dive into this ever before? Try and figure it out. So, so here's part of the problem. I'm not sure where the question is coming from because there is question about the year, there's question about the month, and there's question about the actual day as well. So you can kind of cover all three of those, I suppose, but... But any thoughts that you have, anything that you've studied that you want to share, anything that's come to your mind when it comes to the date of Christmas? Looks like John's got a hand. Um, I want to say it's around roughly March. March? Yes. Okay. Ooh, there we go. And from your studies, what conclusion... Where did you find the conclusion that brought it to March, I guess? That's a good question. I believe they pointed towards time of season, mm -hmm. or like seasonal events happening around that time. Especially okay. since they, if that was around the time of a census, it had to be a season where people could relatively travel easily enough. Good thought. Anybody else thoughts? All right. Since you started with the month, that's where I'll start. You could probably read about any source that will probably put it within one of four or five months. Some people put it in the spring for some of those reasons. Some put it in the fall, and they go by Luke chapter 2 and say, okay, well, the shepherds were out in the fields, and the weather in Bethlehem and surrounding is probably not as conducive as to, to being in the fields if you're later in the winter, like get into November and December, so maybe fall is a better date for that. You're going to find all kinds of different answers. What John stated, not just the travel, there, we don't think of in terms of a lunar calendar probably as much as obviously the Jewish people did. And so they did mark things by the um, thing that what, when the moon was at certain phases. Right, like Passover, like Christmas time, the winter solstice, all that kind of thing. And so there is some speculation that, that the date would float like around one of those holidays, so to speak. And then the question becomes, okay, when was the announcement of Jesus' birth? And then where do you add the nine months to the announcement? And so that's why there's so much different speculation. In the end, the Bible doesn't tell us. And I, and I think that's for very good reason. Because the report of Jesus' birth wasn't about the date. It was about what Jesus came to do. And, and so that is never lost in all of this. As far as the, the year goes, um, I think you know that we mark time by 
BC or now BCE and AD, and there's this assumption that Jesus, if we did it right, should have been born in AD 1, right, the first year of our Lord. Um, but chances are pretty good that that date was off just by a little bit, at least probably two or three years, if not more. Most people put Jesus' birth sometime between 7 BC and 2 BC, and part of that is because of Herod the Great. There is some historical evidence, one historian in particular, who puts the date of Herod at four, death, Herod's death, Herod the Great's death at 4 BC, which means that Jesus probably was born somewhere between 4 and 2 BC. You can even back it up the other way if you want. So this is where it all gets kind of interesting. And as far as the date, the 25th, if you're going to go to the 25th of December, uh, again, you're going to find so many different answers about this. But ultimately, it probably, at least in part, goes back to Constantine in Rome. And when he became a Christian, there was a Roman festival to the sun god, ultimately. Um, and so there was some speculation that what what uh, Constantine did is he actually wanted to detract from the worship of a false god, and so he put Christmas on December 25th, right after the winter solstice, so that they could celebrate a Christian date. Um, in the end, the birth of Jesus still happened. It's a historical fact, and because of that, you and I are, have, have salvation. So that's the I know you probably would like a better answer, but there really isn't a good answer other than we know Jesus was born. Any other thoughts that anybody has about that one? Otherwise, I'm going to move right into question number two. This one won't take nearly as long. What is Jesus' favorite sport? And I did not submit this question for myself to answer. I don't know if there's a good answer to this question. Does anybody have a thought out there? Jacob has a thought. Oh, here comes Delaney. CrossFit. What, what was that? CrossFit. CrossFit. Mm, nice. Didn't even think about that one. That is excellent. Hard to argue with that one. CrossFit. I like it. Well, there is one sport that our God actually participated in on the pages of Scripture. Wrestling. If you go to Genesis 32, God is undefeated in wrestling. He defeated Jacob. And although Jacob was given the opportunity to hold on, right, to, to, to God until he blessed him, you might even remember that that's where the name Israel comes from. So if you go back and read Genesis 32, when God gives Jacob a new name, he gives him the name Israel, which means he wrestles with God. And so ultimately, I suppose, if you're going to say God has a favorite sport, it's the one that he actually participated in. You can take that for what it's worth. And can I just share one little... You get just ready, get ready to groan, okay? Because there is a dad joke about sports in the Bible. That baseball was actually the very first sport in the Bible because the Bible begins with in the big inning. Yeah, sorry. I told you to get ready to groan, so. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Let's move on to question number three. Question number three, what is or is not permissible in a relationship before marriage? And how do we ensure we are making God-pleasing decisions? First of all, I don't know who submitted this question, but thank you to whoever did. And the reason it's good to talk about these things is because we tend to shy away from talking about them. And 
I know that sometimes maybe it's a little uncomfortable or difficult, but, but I do think it's important just to say, well, what, what does God say? What does God say about that topic of intimacy and what two people can do leading up to marriage, before marriage, in a dating relationship? And I think you're probably aware, in most of the questions, Vicar and I were talking about this earlier today, the questions that you submit are good, and part of the reason they're good is because there's no direct answers in Scripture. So nowhere is God going to lay out for you in section 2.07 of God's penal code, here's what you can do and here's what you can't do, right? That's, you, if you're looking for that in the Bible, you're not going to find it. God doesn't give you specifics for this is what's permissible and this is too far. And so I guess I would probably submit to you that maybe while the question is good, I might ask it just a little bit differently. Uh, you, most of you know that I taught high school students for like 17 years. And they asked it a little bit differently. They would always ask the question, how far can we go? They were a little more crass. Okay, it's just how it is. But, but, but I, know what I, would just, I would just say to them, I understand where the question's coming from and I appreciate the question. But I think anytime you're, you're trying to get up to a certain line, if we picture God as drawing lines in the sand and we're trying to get as close to the line as we can without going over, does it make sense that that already is probably, there's probably something wrong with that attitude? Like, how close can I get to sinning before I'm actually sinning, right? So that kind of idea, I think, just can be turned around where we simply say, how do I use every situation in my life, everything that I'm doing, and glorify God, right? That's what 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So here are the parameters the Bible gives, right? Hebrews 13 verse 4 tells us that Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Right, so we know when God gives the act of full intimacy is for marriage. Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we know the Bible also warns against and does not permit lust. And that's where the parameters end. And so where does that begin in a person's heart? That's a difficult question to answer, and I'm not going to sit up here and make laws where the Bible doesn't, but I think if you begin with the, those questions of how do I do everything to God's glory, and then the second question, which is equally important, how do I serve the person that is the person I love, the person that I care about? If, if we're talking about two people, how do I think about the other person before I think of myself, before I think of what I want and, and what I need? And, and I think when you ask questions in, in that way, and, and when you're looking to honor God in everything that you do, that's the best way to uh, make God-pleasing decisions, to say, you know, what God would you have me do in this situation? I did not tell this story, but maybe this is a little bit helpful. There was a uh, pastor who told his daughter that when she went on her first date, she should keep a Bible between herself and her boyfriend in the car. Have you heard this one? He said his reason was because it's really hard for a, a young man to climb over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to get to, okay, yeah. <laughs> there might be more, so hang on. There might be more yet. <laughs> All right, any, any thoughts additional about that? Hopefully that helped a little bit because I'm not going to give you answers where the Bible doesn't. All right, if not, we're going to move on to question number four and... Vicar's going to handle this one. 
What makes Jesus' resurrection more significant than others who rose from the dead? We'll open it up to you guys if you have any thoughts. I think there's a lot of, a lot of different angles you can take it from. Yeah, there we go. Um, no one else's resurrection from death can save us, and it has nothing to do with like anyone else's salvation. It doesn't have any impact other than um, like they're important in terms of it might bring someone else to faith as like, but it's a more display of God's power rather than the actual act of rising from the dead. Like other miracles are just as like significant in that matter. Um, but Jesus' death and resurrection has an impact on us directly. Anybody else? First, first thoughts? So yeah, I think what, uh, and feel free to chime in if you get a thought as I'm talking. I think what Delaney points to is one of the central things that the scripture focuses on, which is just that Jesus was unlike any other person. Uh, that his life and his death and his rec resurrection were vicarious, right? They were in our place and they were special in a way that ours could not be because it was perfect and it was chosen by God from eternity and Christ was doing it all in our place. And so if... Christ had remained dead, uh, in God's plan that would have left a lot of big time question marks. And the ones that like uh, Pastor focused on last week was the big what ifs of uh, if Christ is still dead, what does that mean for us and our life and our faith? It's all useless. And I think you can you could take it even further and into areas just as simple as, like Jesus says, is God the God of the living or the God of the dead? You know, like just as simple as what kind of a God do we have? We have a God who is the God who created, who loves, and who lives, and has, gives full and eternal life to his people. And if Christ doesn't rise from the dead, that picture of God is thrown into question. And I think the other main thing that came to my mind, first of all, was just that the, the scriptures present the death and the eternal rule and resurrection of the Messiah. And so in order for all of the prophecies and for God to continue to be God and to be true, Christ had to die to bear our sins, to be punished by God, and also to be raised from the dead so that he could live and rule eternally at the right hand of God as all the prophecies said he would. And so I think in, in a lot of those ways, Jesus is pointing to the necessary parts of his life and his death, but it's also the resurrection that he points to the disciples. Like, you should have known this had to happen. You know, the, the Old Testament makes it pretty clear that the Messiah has a lot to do after death. And so this is how you know. And, you know, Paul says it is because of his resurrection that we know he's the Son of God, that he's the chosen one. And so I think, yes, 
it's as hard to get away from the significance of Jesus' resurrection as it is the significance of his death. Anybody else uh, thoughts on that one? Or Pastor, you got anything to follow up on? No, that, that was great. Yeah. I, the, the thought, the, I'll just share one brief thought. The one thought that came to my mind is every other resurrection that happened in the Bible was either because of Jesus directly or it pointed to the power of Jesus over, over death, right? So after Jesus dies on the cross and the people come out of their graves, I think those two things are connected, right? They didn't raise themselves and walk around Jerusalem and appear to people. Uh, it was the power of Jesus that raised them. Okay, multi-part question here. We'll take it one at a time. Does Jesus' physical manifestation still exist, or did it cease once he ascended? And I think um, if I knew, I would ask who asked the question, but I think physical manifestation is just uh, his physical presence. Yeah, I, I think it probably is just Jesus. What is Jesus as far as a human body still? Does he yeah, still that's have what a I was human thinking. body? Yeah. Yeah. Anybody want the first word here? Christoph and then Joel. I think yes, because as Christ was fully man, he has all of man's limitations. The question that might come up there is about the ubiquity of Christ's flesh, if you're willing to go that far. The and what, sorry? The ubiquity of Christ. Uh, if you're willing to discuss that as a third part of this question. Joel, yeah. Um, there's a current theologist in, from Britain who talks about Jesus' body after the resurrection and how it is, special qualities how he can go through walls and, um, yeah, do certain miracles like that. So perhaps his body is durable and has other special qualities. So I think what I'm hearing for sure is that we, we say yes, affirmative, Jesus does still exist bodily and physically after the resurrection. What is all contained in that is beyond our conception. How, I mean, the, uh, most of the challenges are also there in the incarnation, which people have been puzzling over forever. You know, how can the infinite occupy the finite and how can God be in one place and all places at once? And, you know, there are a lot of different questions that when we think of what is physical, the, the definitions seem to limit God. Uh, but we still confess that, that beyond our knowledge, um, God, Christ is present bodily. And we confess that every time we take the Lord's Supper, which is 
A question later on that I think we'll get to, but is also very related. And if Jesus' wounds were still present after his resurrection, will our wounds also be present? Again, good question. We're left mostly to speculation, which Joel kind of uh, touched on some of the relevant things for this question. Delaney, go ahead. Don't have any biblical reference for why this is the thought that I have, but we're told somewhere, and someone probably has reference, but that our physical bodies won't, like we won't need them in heaven. So there's no necessary reason for them to necessarily be there. So there's thought that we won't have physical bodies. Now what that looks like, I'm not sure. But then also, um, just our bodies would be perfect if they were there because everything in heaven will be perfect. So that doesn't necessarily mean that we would have any wounds there as evidence of a sinful nature and a body that could be harmed. If I had to guess, they're probably getting this question namely from the account of Thomas, since he says, see the nail marks in my hand, see the seer of my side. I guess, the, again, I have no biblical backing for this, but personally, I would guess we wouldn't have those wounds. The reason why Jesus has them is purely because, to be a reminder, both when he was, during the 40 days in, in heaven, or even in, maybe not in heaven, maybe just the 40 days, but just as a reminder and kind of showing that, yes, this is proof of what I did, similar to how the empty tomb is proof of what he did. My immediate thought to this question was that it doesn't matter because we'll be in heaven and yeah, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> Christoph? I can just speak up for a second. People online won't hear you then. It sounds like there may be some confusion between heaven and new earth. I don't think we're going to go there, but I'll, I'll, try, to, <laughs> I'll try to wrap a, a concise answer, hopefully. Uh, so I think what um, John and Abby and Joel have all said are, they get the conversation started, and basically what it what it tells us is that we don't have a lot to go on. The resurrection accounts of Jesus, I mean, Mark says that the, when Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that he appeared to them in a different form. And you have the disciples at times not recognizing Jesus. And then there's the times where he shows them his hands and his feet, but they think he's a ghost because he came through the wall. And so we really don't know that much about the resurrected body. Like, uh, what are its limitations? How is the flesh, how does it relate to the body that we know now? And I think the later parts of 1 Corinthians 15 kind of go there in the best way that we can talk about. And it's kind of mind-blowing. Paul uses things that we know, like, okay, you can tell the difference between chicken meat and fish, right? There are two different kinds of flesh. And you can tell the difference between the seed of a plant 
and its fruit. And you can tell the difference between what you sow and what comes out of the ground. And in those ways, we can talk about the resurrection body. In it being something that is related, that is still physical, that is still what we would call flesh and blood, but it is not anything that we know or can comprehend at this point. And what we will be will be revealed when Christ comes again. And so that kind of, I think that it says all we can say really about Christ's resurrected body and our resurrected body, but we have the hope that because of his resurrection and his appearing to the disciples and then telling us that, that our bodies too will be made like him for we will see him as he is. And I would say you really answered the third part of the question yeah. because I think 1 Corinthians 15 is the best place to go. And I'll just share a little bit, and I'm going to guess here because I didn't look it up, but I'm thinking we're in about the 40s, the verses 40, where Paul says, it is sown, our, our human body is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body, it is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. So there is marked difference between what we have now and what we will have when the resurrection of the flesh happens. And I think that's what you were getting at, Christoph, without dismissing your question. Currently, people who are in heaven are their soul, and their bodies are in the ground. But when Jesus comes again, then soul and body are going to be reunited in the new heaven and the new earth. So I think that's what you were getting at, and that probably is a good, a good enough way to say it for now. All right, I'm going to plow ahead. The next two are... Fairly quick, I think, and then I want to at least talk a little bit about question number eight because it was a really good one. Uh, question number six, I, did, I think this was directed to me. I don't know if it was directed to everyone, but here's what it says. Do you agree with the book of Concord because of or insofar as it accurately reflects or represents Scripture? All right, so this is a little bit of a heavy question, but I'm going to just introduce you real quickly to a couple of Latin terms. There is a quia subscription to the Book of Concord, and there is a quatanus subscription to the Book of Concord. One is because, that's quia, the other is insofar as, that's the question. So maybe let's start with the Book of Concord. Are, are you aware of what the Book of Concord is? So the Book of Concord is all of the teachings. If, you, if we call ourselves a confessional Lutheran church, those are the confessions. They're contained in the Book of Concord. So it's the three ecumenical creeds. I know I'm using big words. I'll just tell you what they are. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, Luther's small catechism, Luther's large catechism, the, the Augsburg Confession, unaltered, the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, the small called articles, and the Formula of Concord. Those are the main writings of the Reformation that were in and around the Reformation. Obviously, the creeds predate that. But those things were put together in a book of Concord that was the confession of the, the Lutheran church in the mid, well, early, mid-1500s to late-1500s. And so today, when Lutheran pastors in multiple synods, not just the Wisconsin Synod, when pastors make their promises to, at their ordination, they take a because the confessions agree with scripture point of view. There, there are, there, what is written in the confessions is scriptural. Uh, it isn't scripture, but it 
agrees with what Scripture says. And so the subscription that we take is a quia or a because they agree with Scripture, not insofar as. Uh, that's the, allowing the fact that there are errors that in those writings, and so then you can just dismiss them entirely. I know that was a heavy question, but whoever asked it, it was a good one. So we'll move on to question number seven. When is Jesus' body and blood present with the bread and wine at communion? All right, maybe you haven't thought about this. It's a great question. So when does the bread and wine also contain the body and blood of Jesus as, we, as the Lord's Supper is celebrated? Can I just tell you that the Bible doesn't answer that question? The best answer the Bible gives is that when you receive it, it is Jesus' body and blood. Jesus said to his disciples on Monday, Thursday, take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this is my blood. Right, so did I have the wrong question? Okay, we're good. Yeah, so that, that's, what, that's, what, uh, that's, that's what Jesus said. So as you receive it, it is Jesus' body and blood. I can't tell you exactly when it is that. So here, here's where I, I think I understand where the question's coming from, at least a little bit. It's pretty common in Christian circles, Lutheran circles, that when the words of institution are spoken prior to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the pastor might make the sign of the cross over the bread and wine as the, uh, as the, uh, as the celebration of the Lord's Supper is happening. And that might give people the impression that that's sort of like a magic wand that just automatically turns it into Jesus' body and blood. Uh, and, and I can't say that that's what happens. All I can say is that the Bible says when you receive it, uh, it is Jesus' body and blood. There's nothing in Scripture that says you have to make the sign of the cross over the bread and over the wine uh, in order to make sure that it turns into Jesus, also contains Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. So you can rest assured that when you receive the bread and you receive the wine and the Lord's Supper, Jesus promises you that you're also receiving his body and his blood. Hopefully that covered that one well enough. All right, last one. This one I'm going to open up to you guys. I know we're running a little short on time, but uh, it's a great question. How can Christians defend creation to evolutionists? So how do you go about speaking to someone that believes evolution, how do you talk to them about creation? So maybe some of you have had some experience with this, so I'll open it up to, to you, the students, and if you have things that have worked for you or things that you'd like to say, I'd love to hear them. Jacob. I think either way you have to think about it. it. It always comes back to something unexplainable happening. So like, yeah, even if evolution occurred, something had to put it into motion. And I don't know, the, once you start looking at evolution as a mechanism to remove the need for God, I think it, it shows itself for what it is. Yeah, good thought. I guess the way I approach this question is, it's not necessarily the best one, I guess, in terms of you know, an evolutionist perspective to give them a satisfying answer. But I guess I would say, assuming the evolution is a scientist or someone who generally gives kudos to science, as a scientist, you know that science is about not proving, but just disproving. 
So you can't really prove evolution. And as a Christian, you probably know that my core faith does not revolve around creation, it revolves around Christ. So for me, this is a fringe belief I generally believe because I believe the rest of the Bible is true, and the Bible doesn't give me a hint that creation is a metaphor for evolution. Ergo, my defense of creation is, as, a, as an evolutionist, you know I can't prove that. As a Christian, I don't really need to, because that's not my faith, or that's not the core of my faith by any means of necessary. All right. One more. I've got Eric in the back. And I guess I feel like a, a point of a lot of these questions about, you know, how do we defend this belief that the Bible gives us to an unbeliever? There's always a bit of a dynamic like that we have to understand, which is that, you know, if someone's an evolutionist and they're not a Christian, they don't believe in God, right? It's it's hard to just convince them that God created the world if they don't believe in him and of course yes maybe we can make points like Jacob said about you know how something unexplainable happened to to maybe lead them towards God but like you know I feel like it's always important to remember in these things that like the big dividing line is whether this person we're talking to knows and believes in God or not because that's just going to lead you to like a completely different, I don't know, natural conclusion here. Good, and, and that's really where I was going to start. So Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what, is vi what was visible. Right? So creation is something that we accept because we have faith in God and faith in his word that he lays out for us. And, and so there is certainly, it starts with the idea that when presented with a set of facts, and, and, and let's be honest, that we are operating, whether you believe in creation or evolution, you're operating with the same set of facts, right? There's a world here, it had to get here somehow, and the problem is not the facts, the problem is how do we interpret what happened to get us to those facts? And if you are a Christian and you believe the Bible, the Bible is going to change the way you interpret those facts. And if you're not, then that's going to change how you, the presuppositions that you bring into interpreting the facts. So, so I, I will just say this. One of the things I've tried to do, and I wish that I did this earlier in my life because I was probably one of those people that thought I could come up with all the right answers and say the magic thing, and my arguments were going to be great, and people were just going to just, oh, that was wonderful what you'd said, that doesn't happen. At least not to me. Maybe it'll happen for you. But I trust the power of God's word. And so I have begun to say things like this to people. I say, you know, I know you might not believe the Bible, but I do. I believe that the Bible is the true words of God, and that changes the way I interpret the facts of this life and the facts of the world and how it got, came into existence. And there's certain things that you can even point out to, or point out like the ideas of good and evil and, and all the things of why the flood and all those kind of things. Why did that happen? Well, it all has its basis in what I believe from the Bible. And, and so if you could point to the Bible as, as a reason for what you believe, I think this is the mistake that I made. I think it's a mistake that a lot of Christians make is they try to take the Bible out of the equation and say, let me prove creation to you without the Bible. You can't do it. 
and you can't come up with any answers that will satisfy anyone. But if you point to the word of God, which is the power of God to change people's hearts, and say, this is where I start. And we're not going to be on the same page if we start at two different places. Um, but, but at least you, you give testimony to the fact that my worldview, my presuppositions start with the word of God is, com is completely true. Uh, and, and I think that's probably the, the best that you can do because, as was stated, there is, when people are coming from two different worlds and trying to answer the same questions, it's going to be awfully hard to bring those together. Here's something I, I heard not too long ago that I really love. Maybe our, our best job as Christians is to put a pebble in someone's shoe. You know what that's like, right? If you get a little pebble in your shoe, you're like, there's something there, I've got to get it out. And maybe just by pointing to God's word, by having a point or two that you can make on the basis of God's word, you plant that little thought that somebody has that they might come back to later, that they have to, that, that, that itch they have to scratch and say, there's something missing in my life and maybe there's an answer uh, that, that I'm, I'm missing because I don't listen to what God says in his word or I don't believe uh, that whole Bible thing. And, and, and maybe that's the best that we can do as Christians is let God do his work through the word as we testify to the Bible. All right. Please, Joel. Thank you. Vicar. A quick, a quick plug on that note, which I think it's also uh, a 21st century bias that we bring to scriptures. We're just obsessed with material origins and material existence. And the Genesis account, while it includes those things, is not driving at how material got here. It's driving at how society became a functioning thing and how families came into existence and why there's distinctions between these certain things and why we have day and night and the bigger, the bigger sort of structural kinds of reality and what that means for God, that he made man to be like him, to be priests on the earth, to represent him and to rule and to govern and that he, as a God, would dwell with them. And all these bigger pictures that I think many people, when you say, like, what is ideal, uh, they're the kinds of things they dream about. And that is what Genesis says God created us to be and to know. And I think when we connect on those things first, there's room to disagree and, and move in other directions that are more constructive rather than just butting heads and, and quitting each other. Thanks, Vicar. I'm just going to wrap that up with just one last statement. I think this is the mistake I also made. You finally have to have love for the person that you're speaking with. And if your goal is to win an argument or prove to them that they're wrong and you're right, you're approaching it for the exact wrong reason. Right? My whole goal should be, I'll have this discussion with you because I care about your soul. Because I care about you knowing the truth of God's word. And so everything that I want to say, I want to bring glory to the God of the Bible and the God who sent his son to die for me so that the person that I'm talking to can also understand that love. And, and if I'm an arguer, if I'm someone that has to be right, that love is lost. And so just keep in mind your ultimate goal always of, of making sure that someone knows, uh, knows the truth about Jesus and, and knows the love that, that God has for every person.